Hi, I'm Patrick Polk, but this is not the rules of investing. In this special podcast mini-series, we're taking a deep dive into the uranium market, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. In the first of three short episodes, I talked to Brandon Munro, CEO of Bannerman Energy and co-chair of the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Demand Working Group. Bannerman is a greenfield developer listed on the ASX under ticker code BMN. Bannerman are currently completing a definitive feasibility study on their Atango 8 project, a scaled-back version of their original Atango project. In this podcast, we discuss the background for the current bull market, how Sprott Asset Management have changed the market with their physical uranium trust, and it gives us some insights into the Atango 8 project. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder of Bannerman Resources. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or, if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Hi, and welcome, Brandon. Thanks very much, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to, I guess, start with a little bit of background about the uranium industry and the supply-demand situation and, and what's happening there. So before we get into the today of the industry, could you give me some background? You know, the last three or four years, there's been a story kind of slowly playing out. Could you explain that and, and, and what's going on there? Well, we'd need to go all the way back to 2011 to put that into context. That's when we had the Great Tohoku earthquake, which claimed 18,000 lives in Japan. But of course, what everyone boils that down to is the Fukushima nuclear accident that occurred as part of that large-scale disaster. We don't need to get into that for now, but the effect of it was to create a hole in demand of about 10% in this sector. And nuclear power and uranium mining had always worked hand in hand in a very tight supply-demand equilibrium. So because there's really only one end use for uranium mining, and uranium is itself an unsubstitutable fuel source for nuclear power. So when that hole occurred because of shutdowns in Germany and in Japan predominantly, Supply continued to roll on because all of the world's uranium suppliers were running off long-term contracts. Now, that set the stage for several years of oversupply, several years of falling prices, and a very long, deep, difficult bear market for uranium equities. And we don't need to remind uranium investors who've been in this story for a while just how difficult that was. Now, fast forward to 2017, and that's when things started to change because in 2017 and then 2018, we saw both of the two largest uranium producers in the world start to exert supply discipline. So Kazatomprom, the Kazakh giants who 
are responsible for operating 40% of the world's uranium supply, of which 25% of that is Kazatomprom-owned supply. They initially cut their supply by 10% and then by 20%. And that supply discipline has, in fact, continued to this day, and they've told the London Stock Exchange that they would continue out through 2023. And Cameco, uh, for their part, they're the very large um, supplier out of Canada. So Cameco, for their part, they put MacArthur River, then the very largest uranium mine in the world, on care and maintenance. And still, MacArthur River is in that situation. So what that did is that started to dial back this supply uh, situation where it was oversupplied, there were too many pounds, there was no sense of concern on the part of utilities because they could get the pounds that they wanted, they could get them very cheaply, price dropped as low as $18 a pound, which was well, well below most of the world's cost of production, let alone profitable level of production. And it took us a long time of running deficits to work off the inventory that the utilities had built up over that period of time as they continued to take delivery of those long-term contracts signed before Fukushima. So there's the setup. Now, what we've had over the last few years is because of those measures and some other mines that were forced into care and maintenance for economic reasons, such as Paladin Energy's Langer Heinrich mine in Namibia, the sector started to run a deficit. So in other words, when you took all of the mined uranium around the world, added the secondary supply of uranium, that ended up being about 20 million pounds less than what was being consumed in nuclear power reactors. And to give you a relativity there, about 175 million pounds of uranium is consumed annually in nuclear power reactors around the world. So 20 on 175 million, you know, that's a substantial deficit for a sector that um, traditionally has been quite well balanced. Now, the way the utilities survived, and this is all relevant to today, I promise, the way you, the utilities um, survived over that period is to draw down those inventories. And so that's why even with a substantial deficit, we didn't see any serious uh, pressure on price. And so this unsustainably low pricing situation continued until literally a couple of months ago, uh, we had prices as low as $30 uh, back in March, even below $30, $28.50 in March this year. So that's where we found ourselves, this market that was very pregnant for a pricing change, but just wasn't able to quite push it over the line. And it was certainly helped on the supply side by COVID disrupting production in Canada and Kazakhstan and uh, a few other places around the world. But at the same time, the utilities, they had bigger fish to fry in their businesses. Um, COVID-related disruption was such a massive issue for a nuclear utility to deal with in most parts of the world that it was easier for them to defer making any difficult or complex decisions about their fuel procurement. So it rolled on. And then, as I'm sure we're about to talk about, about two months later, that all changed very, very suddenly. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about, actually. Uh, okay. The spot price, or um, should I say the spot price maybe at the moment. Um, there have been some pretty significant changes this year. Could you explain uh, what they are and, and why they matter? 
Well, it really has been significant indeed. At the end of April, Sprott Asset Management, the giant resources house out of Canada, announced that they wanted to add to their portfolio of physical bullion trusts a uranium trust. And they cleverly did that by acquiring the largest and oldest player in this space, Uranium Participation Corp, which gave them a good head start on a big portfolio. And at the time of the transaction, the net asset value of that was circa $600 million. So they announced that towards the end of April. And that's when, for astute uranium investors, the intent became quite clear. But what took a little bit of time was for the detail of that playbook to start emerging. And that really happened only five or six weeks ago. They made a couple of changes to the old structure that Uranium Participation Corp had. Significantly, they remained listed on the TSX, but they changed it to a trust structure and are able to issue units in both Canadian dollars, which of course suits the Canadian investors, but also US dollars, which makes it a lot more streamlined for that mountain of money sitting across the border to start migrating into this trust. And most significantly, they introduced an at-the-market facility. So in other words, they can issue every day units uh, that are sold to buyers on the markets, and they can immediately use those funds to then buy uranium. So as a result of that, in uh, really uh, uh, less than 30 trading days, they've accumulated 10 million pounds of uranium at a run rate, which is equivalent to almost the entire uranium production from all the mines around the world. So they've had a very distinct impact. Now, that average liquidity works out being a little bit above £400,000 per day. And to give you a bit of comparison, Patrick, for the four months before Sput started getting going, the total market spot liquidity in this industry was about £220,000 per day on average. So they're monstering it in terms of liquidity. And where it gets really fascinating is this uh, incessant buying of uranium almost every day in the spot market is now bringing to life other demand um, centres in this industry. So, for example, we've just seen utilities start to come into the sector, into the spot market despite the challenges that they might still be having with COVID. And the reason for that is they've realised that they can't just simply delay a decision by a few weeks because the price might have gone up 10 or 20% in that time. So if they're thinking that they might need pounds, they have to buy them now. And uh, rather than relying on hyperbole, I'll throw some some hard facts at you. Um, In this period, this four to five weeks, it's the most rapid increase in the uranium spot price since those records have been kept. So it is dramatic for now until we've seen the uranium price increase from $28 back in March up to $50 this week. Some people are saying that the spot or sput um, has caused the market kind of to run a bit too hard, too fast. Uh, Some early investors in the sector have even started selling out. What do you think? Do you do you think that it's sustainable, or is it really has have has it run ahead a bit ahead of the f- fundamentals? Yeah, well, a comment like that, I suppose it depends whose perspective you're looking at. Uh, from a utilities perspective, yeah, it has run too hard, too fast. Uh, they've gone from being able to think about 
buying pounds in the low 30s to now needing to get their head around buying pounds in the 50s. And that inevitably causes inertia because there's a fair bit of analysis that needs to be done to adjust to a situation like that. Um, From an investor's perspective, I think one thing that really distinguishes this market as we stand from other hot or momentum-driven markets is that we've got the fundamentals to back this up. So it's not like this is running hard and an investor needs to be looking over their shoulder wondering if everything's going to come crashing down to earth. Yes, there might be a pause. Yes, there might be a retracement. But we still aren't there in terms of the uranium prices that we need for sustainable production coming into this sector. And just to remind people, like I said before, we've been running a 20 million pound deficit as it is, and that deficit grows dramatically towards the back end of this decade because many of the largest mines in the world start to mature and run out of ore. So there's a serious supply depletion. At the same time, there's demand growth. So the World Nuclear Association's reference scenario projects demand growth out to 2040, growing at 2.6% compounded per annum. And against that, there's been such a drastic underinvestment in supply because of that Fukushima factor since 2011 that we don't have a whole range of projects just lining up, waiting to start at the starting line. The few projects that are ready to start need an incentive price well above the $50 that we're trading at at the moment. So I would say, yes, there's definitely a growth spurt going on here. There's no question. But we've still got some big shoes that we need to grow into. So uh, I don't feel any level of discomfort as we stand at the moment. Do you have a sense for what you think the incentive price would need to be to motivate enough projects to go into production to actually meet demand? Well, yes, I do. Uh, We model this and I'm also very involved in the World Nuclear Association's uh, working groups that model demand and supply and secondary supply. And the reality is that to bring on sufficient supply over the next several years, this price is going to need to settle long-term at around $80 and potentially more if we start to see uh, more interesting demand numbers coming out of decarbonisation, if we start to see small modular reactors playing a big role, if we start to see green hydrogen produced from nuclear power increasing demand, if we start to see some of the political shackles on nuclear power loosened, or for that matter, if we start to see China enlisting nuclear power in the way that I feel they simply have to if they're going to have any chance of achieving the decarbonisation goals that they're looking at. So the way that we think about the world and the way we think about uranium pricing is that uh, to achieve an equilibrium into the medium term, it needs to be around $80 or more. And into the long term, well, we're just going to have to watch demand, but there's potential upside from there. Why do you think, I mean, you just spoke about the green credentials of uranium. Why do you think the political support for uranium is so low, given the obvious benefits to decarbonisation? Yeah, well, I suppose we have to define which political system we're talking about here. Um, In Australia, sure, it's low. But I can tell you I've had many a discussion on a private level with a politician in Australia, and privately, 
For the most part, those politicians from all persuasions accept that nuclear power does have a role to play. It's just that there's too much political risk associated with popping their heads above the parapets and waiting for the anti-nuclear crowd in the far left to take shots at them. Um, now, that's that's a very Australian um, dynamic, and that dynamic is it exists in other parts of the world, such as Germany and Austria and, uh, to a lesser extent, Belgium. Um, and we can come back to that in a moment, but I just want to clarify the most important centres for nuclear power, the US, uh, UK, China, Russia, India, they are all experiencing uh, quite overwhelming bipartisan political support for nuclear power. And that's one of the factors that's really driving the fundamentals right now. If we use the US as an example, after the Biden administration came in, they gave unequivocal support for nuclear power. And that's the first time that we've seen truly bipartisan support from both the Democrats um, and obviously the Republicans in about 40 years. It's difficult to understate the importance of that when you realise that the US represents 25% of uranium demand. And that support hasn't just been hot air and rhetoric. That support's extended to hard uh, financial support that's being put through Congress at a federal level at the moment that essentially guarantees a minimum level of profitability for nuclear power plants. They're determined to make sure that there are no more nuclear power plants that close down prematurely. Because every time a large-scale reactor closes down, it's like taking a million electric vehicles off the road in terms of the carbon impact. So they're big numbers, they're big impacts. Um, you could say a similar thing for the UK. Uh, that's uh, got bipartisan support. Um, support, of course, in countries like France and parts of Scandinavia and other parts of Europe. So it's a mixed bag on politics. Um, to answer your question, in those areas that do struggle politically with nuclear power, uh, it's more a question of servicing the voting potential of the constituencies and uh, finding it challenging to uh, step back from entrenched ideology, which we see in Germany. So despite overwhelming evidence at a hard facts level, uh, certain political parties, they've got too much to lose by stepping back and backflipping on entrenched ideology that's got them to where they've got. And whilst that is by no means exclusively the Green Party remit, uh, we do see Green Party, such as in Scandinavia, who have adopted nuclear party power as part of their platform. It still tends to be an important uh, policy platform for Green Parties and, of course, their fundraising apparatus. I wanted to come around and actually talk about your company for a little bit, uh, Bannerman. Back in the last bull market, Bannerman started a, a study for the Atango project, which came out with a £7 million per annum uh, definitive feasibility study. Uh, in more recent years, though, you've undertaken a new feasibility study, which I understand is currently at the, at the PFS stage, for a £3.5 million per annum production. Could you explain the decision to scale back from £7 million per annum to £3.5 million? And also, I mean, if there is a sustained bull market over a significant period of time, do you expect that maybe you'd be looking to scale that plant up again back to that higher capacity that you were originally planned on? We sure do, Patrick. And that's one of the most exciting aspects of the Tango 8 
development pathway which you're describing. So yes, we did uh, progress to a definitive feasibility study level and in fact a pilot plant, the originally envisaged Etango project at a 7.2 million pounds per annum average annual production. But we found that there was an opportunity to scale that back to 3.5 million pounds, get into production sooner with lower development hurdles, a much reduced capital outlay. And the beautiful thing about it is it does have that flexibility that you've just described. So once we're into production and profitable, we can then look at adding another processing train to increase that production. And there's no reason why it technically, why it can't be increased back to that 7.2 million pounds. And of course, in the design with of the Atango 8, and for people out there, we've just released a PFS about a month ago. In the design of Atango 8, we've had that in mind. So the water pipeline that uh, is built into that uh, can take the additional capacity if we add another train. The uh, way that the infrastructure is designed, there's the space to add that additional processing facility. And what's very uh, amenable about this project to that expansion is to achieve all of those improvements in our economics that we did with the Tango 8, we've done that simply by working in the early pit shell design of a project that outcrops. In other words, our ore body sticks out of the ground. And so for the first uh, 60 million pounds worth of uranium, it's got a very, very low stripping ratio. That then meant that we could reduce the scale of the mine and we could defy what is typically gravity for these types of very large projects, being that bigger leads to more economies of scale and therefore if you want to get uh, lower production costs, you must get bigger and bigger. So that little quirk of our ore body and some of the other very positive attributes of our ore body meant that we could go smaller and we aren't simply high-grading an ore body. We're not uh, getting something, we aren't borrowing from tomorrow to pay today and then left with a less attractive ore body. We're simply mining the first uh, 60 million pounds of what is a what was a 130 million pound ore reserve under the DFS. So that means two things. It means that the either an expansion of production in the way that we just described, we expect to be quite feasible, but also it means that if we don't expand production, an elongation of the mine life beyond the initially considered 15 years uh, is very possible. And we know that the resources are there. It's just a case of uh, working in a longer mine uh, life of mine plan. And because there's plenty of material under the pit that hasn't made it into resources, uh, so it's open at depth, because of that, it might be an expansion and an extension of the mine life. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened at the Rossing Uranium Mine that Rio Tinto operated just down the road from us. When that first came into production in 1976, that was a 16-year mine life, and it's still going. In your opinion, what are the most important attributes for a, a prospective uranium investor to consider about Bannerman? Well, I think first and foremost, investors are entering the sector right now because they're optimistic about prices and different investors are running different price scenarios 
but certainly the investors who are keen on Bannerman are running price scenarios at the incentive price level that I described and sometimes higher. Now, what is important for an investment in Bannerman is that we are in the zone to produce pounds into that cycle. So we've completed a DFS on a Tango 8, uh, completed a PFS on a Tango 8. We're now proceeding with the DFS and allowing time for marketing and financing and engineering and construction. We would be able to be in production by 2025 if we like the pricing that's offered to us along that way. So we can convert those pricing scenarios into our bank account. And there's very, very, very few projects around the world that can do that because it's all very well to have flying uranium prices, but if the only impact it's actually having is on a spreadsheet, then that starts to reduce the appeal as this sector matures. So look, that'd be the first thing. I think I can add to that the fact that we're in Namibia uh, Namibia has got a 45-year history of uranium mining. It's the third largest producer of uranium in the world today. And it's uh, a place that is largely built off uranium, certainly where we're operating it is. So there's very strong government and social and community support. That makes developing a uranium mine an awful lot easier than in most other jurisdictions. And we've got our environmental approval. That's something of a rarity in the uranium world. And it can be something that can lead to extensive delays in project development. So having that put away together with all of the other advanced project attributes and what I've described in terms of jurisdiction and proximity to development as this cycle matures, um, I think complements just the sheer scale that we've got and that leverage that that offers to a rising uranium price environment. Great. Well, uh, Brandon, thanks for chatting to me today and thanks for giving us some insights on the uranium market and also on Bannerman and Etango. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for more uranium-related content. Next up is Lee Currier from NextGen Energy, who are developing one of the largest, highest-grade uranium deposits in the world. If you enjoyed this special, please be sure to leave us a like or a comment.